Hello, and welcome to Reasonable Disagreements, a Hoover Institution podcast on law and policy. I'm Adam White, and it's my pleasure, as always, to be joined by Hoover Senior Fellow Richard Epstein. Uh, Richard, as always, a lot has happened since we last spoke. We're taping this on Friday, May 3rd, and two days ago, Attorney General Barr appeared before the Senate Judiciary Committee in what proved to be a fairly explosive hearing, and the hearing itself was exploded before it even started by a letter that was released or leaked the day before, a letter to Barr from uh, Special Counsel Mueller, criticizing in some ways Barr's previous characterizations of the Mueller report. There's a lot to unpack in terms of Barr's appearance before the committee, Mueller's letter, and I think these larger questions about executive power and congressional power. So let's just dig right in. Did you watch or or follow the hearing? Um, I never get to watch these hearings, and I regard myself the wiser for it, but I certainly did read the accounts and saw bits and pieces of it afterwards. And it was a pretty sort of a mano-a-mano kind of an operation uh, with the Democrats taking the lead and going after him. Um, As ever, I think when the spinmeisters come afterwards, each side sort of thinks that it's won. Uh, The Wall Street Journal put a headline in there called the real attorney general, and I tend to agree with them. And the Democrats were dismissive and thought he was evasive. And the extreme was Nancy Pelosi, who shared her, shall we say, a, a somewhat neutral appearance, you know, on the impeachment issue by announcing that this kind of conduct was criminal. Uh, if this is criminal, then half of Washington belongs in jail. Uh, so I think, in effect, that uh, what I learned from this is that this would have been a completely different arrangement from start to bottom if uh, Donald Trump had not made the cosmic blunder of appointing Jeff Sessions as the attorney general uh, back in 2017. If somebody like Barr had been at the helm, there would have been no delegation. Rosenstein would never have been able to write that one-sided letter for the scope of the investigation. Mr. Mueller would have never been appointed, and I think the whole hearing would have gone a lot better. What did I think I learned from the particular hearing is that essentially what's happened is that Mueller, I thought, behaved improperly when he basically said, I'm going to tell you that I cannot exonerate the president. There was a very effective letter. I don't know if you saw it, but I managed to dig it down by Emmett Flood, who was, I think, in the White House Counsel's Office, saying, look, uh, the only thing that you're supposed to do when you get a delegated duty is to discharge the obligation in front of you and to decide whether or not there is sufficient evidence in order to uh, uh, justify a prosecution. If it turns out there isn't, then that's the end of the matter. You're not supposed to editorialize or say that Congress can take this thing up in some other way. And I think that Flood was exactly right when he said, uh, you're not supposed to, in the most important examination possible, say this is not a typical prosecutorial letter. Um, All the more important when the matter is very critical that you follow the standard rules and don't improvise the way in which I think the Mueller report did. Uh, So uh, the intended purpose was successful. Mueller was able to get Congress into the phrase saying that even though it did not make – that is, Mueller did not make any conclusion, they were free to draw whatever conclusions they want. This then leads to all the information about the redaction and so forth. I don't regard this as much about to do about nothing because I think there's too much that's going on here. But I do think that the uh, very weak analysis that was found in the Mueller report of the obstruction of justice issue um, is something that has to be commented on. I would just make one point. 
there were a number of issues that were uh, basically put to one side in that report, all of which tend to favor the president. Um, it's a big difference if he thinks he's guilty or if he knows he's innocent. It's a real question to ask whether or not a president can obju- obstruct justice when he's in charge of the entire operation on this matter. And it's also a very difficult question to think about this as a matter of obstruction when virtually all the acts that you're talking about are done in public. If you put those things into the report, I think it's a much stronger case for the president on this. But as his usual habit, he gets his temper, gets the better of him, and he starts talking too much, and he tends to undercut the strength of his own position. So I think, in effect, that nothing substantive has changed on this particular front. What I think is much more troublesome to the Democrats is there a serious allegation of improprieties by the FBI and by high Democratic officials uh, during the uh, run-up to the 2016 presidential election, and they do not want Barr examining that stuff because you don't need any fancy theories of obstruction in order to say that it's obstruction when you start to um, destroy documents which are a possible relevance with respect to a criminal investigation. Now, now, Richard, given that our, our podcast is called Reasonable Disagreement, sometimes I worry that, that we're both being too reasonable and we don't disagree enough. I'm sort of delighted because what you just laid out, I think there's a lot in there uh, for us to disagree about. I want to start with the beginning. Um, you made a point that really struck me at the beginning. I wasn't expecting it. You said that if, if Sessions hadn't been the attorney general, if, say, Barr or somebody like Barr had been the attorney general, somebody who – when you reference the Wall Street Journal article, I think what you mean is somebody who's really taking responsibility for the work of the Justice Department. Yeah. Are you saying that that if Barr had been the Attorney General from the start, he wouldn't have gone ahead with any kind of uh, any any kind of in- special counsel investigation himself? No, I'm not saying that at all. Okay. I'm okay. saying and what I am saying. I think what I'm saying is, since it's very hard to do the counterfactuals, he would have never gotten himself into a position where he delegated the authority to Rosenstein. Would have never approved of a charter which says figure out the influence of the Russians on the Trump campaign and all indirect stuff, and not ask about the same question about the influence on the Clinton campaign. And I also think that he would never have appointed Mueller because my view is that Mueller was hopelessly conflicted from the beginning. Because of his close associations, not only with Rosenstein, that's not a good relationship, but much more importantly, his close relationships with um, Jim Comey. And I think that the entire thing would have taken a very different tact if you brought somebody else in there, because I regard the uh, stuff with respect to obstruction as being essentially a political effort to keep the debate alive, even after he doesn't have enough stuff to prove it. And that, I think, is exactly what is happening, and I think it's corrosive and destructive uh, to the general tendency of American politics, when you start having subpoenas, threats of impeachments of the attorney general, criminal charges made by Democrats in the House and Senate, you really have escalated this thing. And as far as I can see, nobody has pointed out any serious mistake that what Barr said um, It was a summary. It was not complete on every nuance, but it was only four pages. But he quoted word for word the essential conclusions on both the um, Russian involvement and on the obstruction charges. So it seems to me that you're just quibbling at the edges if you say that there was some deep difference. It's also, I think, the case. I think it was appropriate for under these circumstances for Barr to uh, defend the president because I think the charges against him were weakened. Uh, So what are the other sides supposed to say? They're supposed to say, look, uh, Mueller's left this emphatic report there, and if it's emphatic, what you have to do is to defer as well and let the thing go to Congress. Um, Barr wrote a very strong memo in 
2018 in June, explaining why he thought that there were serious difficulties with the obstruction charges. And I think that was a pretty sound analysis. And I think it's perfectly proper for him uh, when he gets one of these reports to say, you did not recommend prosecution. I'm not going to prosecute. And that is, I think, uh, what he did. And he's entitled, I think, to uh, basically disregard those portions of the report, uh, which were extraneous to the mission and the charge. I think it's a very serious mark against Mr. Mueller that he was prepared to go beyond the traditional role in his report and to cover things and to address issues that were not his province to do. And I think those were Barr's province, and I think he was right to slap him down on that issue. Okay, so you and I have gone around and around a few times on Mueller. Um, yes, we have. And I'll just, just, just to quickly reiterate my points for folks who haven't listened before, I think Mueller was a great pick. I think the, the investigation, the issues surrounding the election um, were sufficiently weighty that it required uh, somebody with real government experience, um, somebody with bipartisan respectability. Uh, if the Trump administration or the Justice Department had picked anybody of, of no public stature, I think there would have been huge problems with that. But then anybody with significant public stature is almost surely identified with the Republican or Democratic Party in a way that would have raised real problems of its own in terms of partisan alignment with or against the president. I think Mueller was probably the ideal pick. There are things I think I wish he would have done differently in in terms of transparency as he went along with his investigation. But I think the proof was in the pudding. I think the report itself actually was a great credit to the work of the investigation. But that's because – and I disagree with you on this, I think, because I see it in very different terms. I think it was perfectly fine that the Mueller team's report uh, weighed evidence – uh, didn't exonerate or not exonerate when they didn't see fit, offered characterizations and so on. I think that was all good to have in the report because I see the report as something that was supposed to go to the attorney general. It's not intended to be a public document. The governing regulations don't intend it to be a public document. And the more I've watched this whole story unfold, especially the events of this week, the more I feel certain that the real problem here is not Mueller. It's not Barr either. I thought Barr uh, handled himself very well in the hearings. I think the problem surrounding all of this is a fundamental misunderstanding about the role of the special counsel, uh, his legal authority, uh, his position in the executive branch, his position in the Justice Department, and the fact that he is not, his office is not, and is not designed to be some sort of fact-finding body for Congress. I think Mueller's report is great. Uh, not great. I mean, there's a lot of troubling things in it. I think Mueller's report was very well done for a report that was going to the attorney general for ultimate decisions. And I think the problems only really arise when people have the expectation that this report should be released in full and that it somehow should be a substitute for Congress's own powers and responsibilities. I think this, more than anything else, the events of the last week convinced myself that Congress simply does not understand what its own job is, what its own powers are, and what its own um, relative uh, responsibilities are. So I don't have a problem at all with the Mueller report. I have a problem with how it's being handled. Well, I, I disagree with that on the following sense. I think it was perfectly foreordained that the moment that this report was going to be submitted to the attorney general, it was going to be subject to enormous pressures to make at least some fraction of it public. And so what you have to do is to assume that Barr gets this report, sees the conclusion, announces that there is no case for prosecution on either side and doesn't disclose word one about the report. Um, I think at that point all hell starts to break loose. Um, 
Um, this is a monster that has been created by the way in which it was done. I think Mueller knew this. The reason I think he knew it is because what he said in the report is he said, you know, I'm not able to handle all this stuff, so now it's back in the hands of Congress to do it. Now, on that point, I do agree with you. Now, there have been a lot of investigations by Congress, a lot of investigations by people in the media everywhere else trying to find stuff on this, and nobody but nobody has come up with anything that seems to make the collusion with Russian claim credible. Uh, well, if that's all that happened, then you don't need the special prosecutor at all. But I just don't believe that's just going to happen. You had him, had to have him in some sense. But I think, Adam, you have to evaluate that report on the assumption that Mueller knew that it would be made public, at least in part. And at that particular point, the way in which he wrote it, I think, makes it much more difficult to get something sensible. Suppose, let me ask you the question. He has just simply done what a prosecutor normally is supposed to do and says, look, we think there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever of collusion with Russia, and we do not think there is sufficient evidence to warrant prosecution on the uh, obstruction claim. And it just dropped it at that. This would be a completely different dialogue. Well, I don't think Mueller is in a position to make the latter point, right? Because so much of his conclusions regarding obstruction, they turned at least in some part on the Justice Department OLC policy on prosecution of presidents. That's a that's a policy, an opinion that binds the special counsel. Of course, it doesn't bind the attorney general, right? The attorney general is above the OLC. The OLC works for him and not vice versa. I think that's why it had to go to attorney general Barr for a final conclusion. And I think he made the right conclusion so based on what we see in the report. Uh, in terms of what Mueller expected to be released, I think it's pretty clear now on the reporting and on that letter that he sent to Barr that was leaked that he wanted the executive summaries released and released quickly. I think there's a way in which you could release parts or summaries of the report uh, in a way that gives some transparency to the public. But I think uh, – I don't see any sense that Mueller – I mean I could just be wrong here. I, I might well be wrong, but I'm, not, I'm, I'm I don't take it for granted that, that Mueller thought his entire report would get out there. Maybe some of his investigators did, and maybe they're the ones who are leaking. But I think all of this reflects just a fundamental confusion about the role of a special counsel um, in the Justice Department, relative to the Justice Department, and relative to Congress. And I think that this is, if nothing else, going to be, as you might say, a teaching moment um, for Congress on what it can and can't do. Now, they now find themselves. Um, accusing we have Speaker Pelosi accusing Barr of having committed a crime. Barr refused to go to a Thursday hearing before the the House Judiciary Committee, and now there's um, uh, word that he might be charged with contempt, which of course Congress can't really enforce in a criminal way because that's enforced by the Justice Department. Uh, back in January, when Democrats. Uh, took over the House and announced that there was going to be this tsunami of subpoenas. I wrote a piece for TheBulwark.com warning them that they would probably get no real cooperation from the just, from the executive branch and that the just, the executive branch's model for, for going forward in noncompliance was going to be what Eric Holder and Lois Lerner did um, in the face of House Republicans' demands for information in the last administration. Oh, they, they basically stonewalled, right? Exactly. And, well, not, not only do they stonewall, I mean, you can stonewall and then suffer political punishment for it. I think the real lesson of Lerner and Holder is that you can stonewall and win political points, points. from your own team. I think that's the real paradigm shift. And I think that's going to be the new normal. And I think Congress is going to learn the hard way that by turning their oversight into – by outsourcing it to a special counsel, taking what's really a political 
dispute and trying to funnel it into an exclusively prosecutorial dispute fundamentally changes things. And it just baff- it just boggles the mind that now Congress seems – or the House seems stunned that they can't control a Justice Department investigation into the Justice Department – I mean, sorry, into the executive branch itself. Now, I have another observation to make, and again, it's more critical of Mueller. Um, one of the things that Barr did do was he sent him the summary prior to its release and asked him for a comment on it. Mm-hmm. And I think it would have been all the difference in the world if Mr. Mueller had said to him, look, I think this is an accurate summary or I don't think it's accurate in the following sense and think that you ought to make the following modifications. But he didn't do that. He sandbagged. And so the thing comes out after he's given an opportunity to review it, and then he expresses his uneasiness about the way in which it's interpreted. Um, They have a conversation. Nobody's quite sure what's going on in these conversations, but there are many people listening to it. And it's the source of the ambiguities in those conversations, which leads to the notion that Barr is somehow or other engaged in a criminal act. Um, Mueller should have never put Barr into that position. He should have complied with the request to begin with and given much more legitimacy to to the summaries in. And I, I'm just going to ask you again this sort of hypothetical counterfactual. Uh, suppose it turns out that when Barr released the summary, he added a line at the bottom. I've passed the summary by Mr. Robert Mueller. He made several exceptions, suggestions for changes, which I've incorporated, and it now comes out with his full approval. Yeah. What's going what's to happen? It, it, the whole thing is a completely different situation. I think Mueller wanted to leave Barr hanging, frankly. Well, I think, I think the key to the Mueller letter to Barr – is that, as, as you've pointed out, Mueller is not criticizing the accuracy of the letter, of the bar letter itself. Mueller is criticizing, Mueller is, is criticizing or is concerned about the, um, uh, about the public's reaction. As he says, um, he says, the summary letter the department sent to Congress and received to the public late in the afternoon of March 24th did not fully capture the context, nature, and substance of this works, this office's work and conclusions. Well, of course, it didn't fully capture those things. The letter, the bar letter was a summary, but I digress. He adds, we communicated that concern to the department on the morning of March 25th. There is now public confusion about critical aspects of the results of our investigation. Um, which he says is going to undermine our purpose, which is to assure um, full public confidence in the outcome of the investigation. I regard that as pure double talk. No, I don't think. I don't uh, think so. It, I think see, what happens is I'm not blaming you for all the misconceptions that you put out. Right. I mean, it's exactly the strategy that he wants to adopt throughout. He wants to essentially to distance himself from Barr, and so he expresses his uneasiness about the situation, a problem that he could have avoided. And so the scenario that he does puts Barr in the middle of hot water. The one that I suggested means that Mueller has now made an alliance with Barr, has backed him to the hilt, and it's simply prevents this from taking place. There's an enormous amount of disinformation that comes forward when you have a letter which has all of the ambiguities associated with this. I think the letter was fine, but I think there's certain misapprehensions about the way it was perceived. Well, misapprehensions created by you, uh, Attorney General Barr. Um, I am not at all happy with the way in which this thing runs, and as I've said from the beginning, I thought that poor that Mueller was a poor choice. I agree with you. You have to have somebody with genuine information about these things, but 
but too much information in many cases means too many close connections, and the close connections that um, somebody in the FBI had to the FBI and its willingness to defend the FBI against the Trump administration, I think all of that colors what's going on in this particular case. And my view about this is that Barr will do more than weather the storm, and they tend to think that you're acting like a banana republic type when you believe that whenever you have ugly political struggles, what you do is you immediately wave the flags of contempt and impeachment. Um, what they're trying to do to Barr is the same kind of thing what people try to do to Ted Olson, if you remember. So when I look at the Mueller letter to Barr, I see a pretty straightforward and professional letter between two people within government. I don't have a problem with the letter. If Mueller himself leaked the letter, then I, then I have a problem with Mueller's leaking of the letter. My guess is somebody on Mueller's team leaked the letter, and so the problem is that person. The letter itself, I think, is not a problem. I think the letter itself is pretty straightforward. Um, really quick – sorry, sorry, go ahead. I, I think it's liable to misconstruction. And also, um, this is one of these things that are always so ambiguous. You said it's very bad uh, for somebody on the staff to leak the letter, but Mueller didn't leak the letter. No, uh, no, no. The I said, I said, no, no. I said if Mueller leaked the letter. I know it's bad. And it was if, bad of him. Yeah. But if it's somebody else who leaked it inside the department, I also think it's bad. He's in charge of making sure that that ship runs appropriately. And there's always the great problem is I'm not going to tell you to release this letter, wink, wink, nod, nod. Uh, but to the extent that you believe with Mueller that uh, you'd like to get the president, then it becomes a part of the game of dirty politics to release this letter. And Lord knows what the culture is inside the staff. Remember, I don't believe that Mueller, a Republican so-called, uh, appointed a single Republican uh, to the investigatory committee that he put together. Is that correct? Okay. Well, yeah, but so this is a point I've always, I've always been baffled by. I'm not which, baffled. Which, which Republican lawyer would sign up to work for this investigation? Well, it depends on which one you ask. Uh, my guess is you could find many Republicans who are working at sort of standard Republican shops who would have taken a shot at this. Um, you could go to Jones Day. You could go to um, oh, what, Jones Day and Gibson Dunn, many other smaller places that do it. I just don't believe that it's impossible to find a Republican. And indeed, if it is impossible to find the Republican, uh, then what you're doing is you're kind of, kind of an open admission from somebody that this thing can only come out in one particular direction. I'll put it to you another way. Suppose it turned out that what Rosenstein said is I would like you to investigate the influence of Russian activities and collusion with either or both parties. Mm -hmm. At that point, I think it's a lot easier to get a Republican to go on the committee. And indeed, the whole point about this is the startling omission in this case is that even though there's obviously a connection between what the Clinton campaign did and what the Trump campaign did, uh, nothing about Clinton is really discussed in this report. I think there's precisely zero Republican lawyers in Washington, D.C. that would have ever joined this investigation. I think it would have been career suicide. Nobody with aspirations to work in a future role in a Republican Justice Department or a future Republican administration would ever take this job. I think that's a good reason then why you had somebody like Mueller, somebody who was historically affiliated with uh, the Republican Party, somebody who worked in Republican administrations. If he's going to have a team that's predominantly Democrats or other non-Republicans, good to have somebody who is both a Republican but also has the gravitas to run that team well. On this point about investigating, uh, you know, or Russian interference in favor of both parties, or, or the, we'll just say in general, the misdeeds of both parties. This is where, I, again, I just fundamentally disagree. 
I think it's good that this administration investigated itself in order to make sure that it and, and the campaign that led to it hadn't violated the law or, or done anything improper with respect to foreign countries. It's very different when an administration, either Republican or Democrat, goes from investigating itself to investigating its political enemies. And I think any move by this Justice Department to investigate um, the, the other side, especially after President Trump's threat to Hillary Clinton on the debate stage that she should be locked up in jail and with all these political rallies where he encourages people to cheer lock, lock her up i think that would have been catastrophic and i have the same worries now about the word that the justice department might investigate the investigation into the trump campaign i think this will be politically and uh, i think it'll be politically catastrophic i think we ought to be very wary of an administration investigating its enemies even when there's you know, initial reason to believe that an investigation would be worthwhile. I think the best thing President Trump could do, and perhaps the most politically advantageous, although I don't know anything about politics, I'm just a lawyer, I, I think what he should do is say, I think I was treated illegally by our preceding administration, but in the interests of the country, we're moving forward, we're moving forward with our, our jobs and economy-growing program, and we're not going to do to the previous administration what they did to us, namely undertake a politicized investigation of their enemies. Because I think if Trump actually, if his administration actually undertakes this, they risk doing precisely the sort of misdeed that they accuse the Obama administration of doing. Well, I don't think they are. I mean, the difference between the two cases is that if you go back to what it was that the, the uh, Clinton people did and the Justice Department did with respect to the Trump campaign, there was absolutely no cause for any investigation. And the investigation that you're trying to run now is why is it that people in the Justice Department, some of whom have already been dismissed for cause, like McCabe and so forth, managed to take the Steele dossier and use it in order to obtain a FISA warrant. I mean, this thing is a transparent fraud on its face, and they were prepared to do that. It's also the case, I agree, you never would want to go after Hillary Clinton, although I think she was guilty of multiple counts of obstruction starting in 2015, destroying papers, using service, and all the rest of that stuff. But I don't see what the great danger is in terms of the politicization if you wish to conduct a more thorough investigation of people who have already been shown to be tainted by improper conduct uh, during the course of the investigation that happened. And look, I mean, to put it this way, if what you say is correct, then you should regard this as complete political suicide, and that the Democrats are now trying to essentially go after Barr with impeachment and other stuff, because that is an ongoing political battle of one kind or another. Uh, but I think it's a very, very hard choice to start to say, if you think, as I do think, that there's some very serious irregularities that took place, some ruined lives that existed by virtue of what went on, uh, some public disinformation that happened, and then to say, okay, we do nothing about it. It may be ironically that what has to happen is you have to get some kind of an independent prosecutor. I hold my breath when I say that. And you certainly would have to do what I think is possible to get at least some Democrats involved in this particular situation. Now, I think the following thing that you said, it's political suicide for any Republican, you said, 
to join in, in, in join in any investigation that dealt with anything of the uh, uh, Trump thing. The president is remarkably vindictive, so we know that if they wanted to get future lives, then they were in on that. Not, but I think it's also very telling that if no Republican will do this, then it looks as though the whole thing is political from start to stop, and that's what's so troublesome about this this kind of situation. And um, I don't believe there was any evidence of collusion. I think that Mueller was correct on that, but he could not let go on the obstruction charges. So what's happened is after the report is done, the serious thing is put together, and now we have this huge hullabaloo over a collateral matter, which never should have gotten to be this particularly close. If you use the definitions of obstruction that the Democrats have to rely on to go after anybody in the Trump administration, uh, then you find that the Democrats in 2016 are all toast, because under those broad definitions, nobody on that side could survive. I don't know whether I want this thing to be done or not. I mean, it's quite clear that the Senate may end up doing it because it's under Republican hands, just as the Democrats are doing it in the House. Um, I think you're right, Adam. If we could get both of these things to disappear from the earth, we might get greater peace and prosperity. Uh, But as best I can tell, the Democrats are not going to let up. Uh, Nancy Pelosi was supposed to be the opponent of impeachment, and now it turns out she starts talking about criminal action. So I think it's fair to say that the entire Democratic establishment in the House and probably in the Senate, given what we've seen there, is now out to discredit and to destroy uh, Barr, the president, and the entire Republican administration. I think that's really very, very unnerving because it's happening right now in front of us. You you know, you asked if I'm so worried about you know, the, the Justice Department investigating Trump's political enemies for, for their evident, you know, misdeeds. Shouldn't I be equally worried about Congress's investigation? I just see this as fundamentally different. I'm much less worried about politicized congressional investigations than I am by politicized Justice Department investigations. I think they're just fundamentally different. I think the powers held by prosecutors are much more substantial. I think the, 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 the history in this country of occasional misuse of Justice Department uh, or FBI investigations, I think is very, very worrisome. And so if Jerry Nadler or others in Congress want to have politicized investigations, so be it. It's Congress. Of course it's political. The Justice Department, I think we need to keep very, very clear of anything that has even the appearance of a partisan investigation against the president's enemies. But that's what happened in 2016. Yeah, that was terrible. That, that was terrible in twenty. I know it's terrible, but now it's also going to be essentially beyond uh, retribution. So there's no such thing as a good Justice Department after a bad Justice Department. Look, we know perfectly well if the Democrats had won in 2016, none of this would have ever seen the light of day. Because there would have been nobody inside there who would be prepared to expose the mechanization. So I'm deeply troubled by the fact that the kind of abuse that you took talk about probably took place at a fairly high and systematic level. And now there is no way that anybody in the Justice Department, solely because they're Republicans, can start to investigate this. And because if you remember when Nunes started to do some of this stuff in the Senate, he was rather in the House, he was also pilloried by the other side. Um, I'm afraid that what I see happening in this is that we are having two sets of rules. The Republicans are going to be bound and shackled by everything that you talk about, and the Democrats are just free to tee off. First, they're free to tee off with the FBI in 2016. Now they're free to tee off in the Senate against Barr when he testified, saying we have to work out some kind of an accommodation. I'm not so sure what there is. 
But, Adam, I'm not enough of an expert, but it seems to me that if you're talking about confidentiality of, of, of what's called of grand jury proceedings and so forth, the occasional leak, whatever it is that you're talking about, you're not talking about making available to the entire Congress of the United States and all of the chief staff all of the information that was otherwise redacted. The numbers are simply too large, and that is what I think it is that um, Nadler is after, and you know he's – pretty tough in his insistence that he's willing to use contempt powers, arrest powers, whatever else it might be to get this going. So here's again the next question. Do we really want to have a world in which the attorney general is constantly going to be under the threat of contempt or arrest by one of the two houses of Congress? And the only comfort we can take in that is that they just are not as strong as the president is when it comes to the prosecution. I'm not sure we really want to do this. So would you do you support the Nadler levels? Do you really think that they ought to go one step further on this? Or do you think that they too should, as a matter of ideal policy, um, hold their hand and drop this as well? Wait, wait, who's the they at the end? The Congress or the, or the um, bar? Nadler. Nadler basically, you know, he sent a letter, a very tough letter, demanding an answer by Monday. And the question I'm asking you is, do you think if any investigation by the Department of Justice of the irregularities in the 2016 campaign, do you think it's a good idea for Nadler to raise the ante in this particular case by threatening serious legal sanctions through Congress um, against the Attorney General of the United States and his staff? Yeah, I think that I think Nadler and, and and the House's demands here go beyond what they're rightfully entitled to, uh, either as a matter of executive privilege in some cases. Um, although executive privilege, you know, it is limited largely to the president's advisors and so on, the immediate advisors. Um, but there's questions of executive privilege. There's also questions about the protection of grand jury material. Um, the grant, the the federal laws of criminal procedure, Rule Six. You know, it begins with a broad statement that nobody is bound to secrecy in the grand jury, but then the next sentences make very clear that that actually the government's attorneys are an exception to that rule. The grand jurors and the employees of the grand jury, the court reporter and so on, and government attorneys, they are they are bound to strict confidentiality. And that illustrates sort of the key insight of the grand jury is that it's an extremely powerful body. Uh, that the private citizens who are hailed before it are left free to talk about what they've seen, and often it might be a good thing for them to talk about what 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 they went through. Um, but government attorneys cannot be allowed to simply release information that was in the grand jury, uh, subject to very limited exceptions, none of which I think apply here. And so, no, of course, Barr should not release. That information. I also think, and I wrote about this a little bit a few a month or two ago, that I think it's very dangerous for prosecutors to go out in public and talk about uncharged conduct and uncharged people. I think that was Comey's big mistake in 2016, and mm-hmm. I think it would be regrettable yes. if um, if if Barr or Mueller repeated that mistake. Now, on the general principle, should Congress use all the powers available to it? to enforce legitimate oversight demands? Well, yes, of course, of course, although that is itself subject to the usual sort of pragmatic and prudential decisions that politics requires. But yeah, I, I've always thought that the executive branch should assert its powers strongly and Congress should assert its powers strongly. Here, I think that the House Judiciary Committee is in the wrong in what it's demanding. Um, so I don't think Nadler should prevail in this dispute. But I wouldn't say that Congress shouldn't work very aggressively 
you know, threatening, even if it requires threatening contempt or impeachment or a budget standoff or whatever, when they're in a, a justified uh, oversight battle with the executive branch. Well, what counts as an oversight battle? I mean, one of the problems, of course, that we always have with the phrase oversight yep. is the idea is abstractly you learn, want to learn from past mistakes with a view towards general legislation going forward. And in this particular case, I don't believe that there's a legislative agenda that follows from the investigation. I think what they want to do it is to humiliate and to neutralize the way in which executive branch officials have to operate. That was exactly what happened with respect to Ted Olson. If you go back you know, 30-odd years on this stuff. And I, I fear that this is exactly what's going to happen again. Um, let me put it to you this way. I do believe that an investigation of the irregularities in 2016 in the FBI is an appropriate thing to be done in the FBI, even though it is fraught with danger. Um, and I also think that it's a much weaker case uh, to say that the House or the Senate has the same kind of power with respect to what's going on, given the nature of executive privilege. And as my first brothers, I would rather have some of the a prudent investigation um, through the of the FBI. But if I can't get that, then I would rather have no investigation by either side. But as best I can tell, there is no instinct whatsoever for a truce or a cease power fire. And the reason it is, is after this bar appearance in the Pelosi statement, I regard this as now as a full-scale pitched war. And it's quite clear that the executive branch will do no cooperation whatsoever because they fear that the slightest constant, you know, slightest concession is going to give through a, a charge that you've waived all your executive privileges. We can get everything against you. Anytime you want to hold something back, it's for corrupt motive. I think we're in a very bad place. Uh, and I think most of it is the Democrats' fault. Now, I agree that there's no real appetite on either parties, uh, on the side of either party for restraint, where there is an appetite for blood. I did a piece uh, for the Bulwark called There Will Be Blood, where I said we're in this arms race of investigations from administration to administration and so on, and it's terrible. Uh, you're right, there's no incentive among the parties themselves to offer self-restraint. Of course, the luxury of being at the Hoover Institution or the think tank is we're able to sort of sit at a remove from the immediate fights and point out how ruinous this approach is. Yes. I will say, so you asked an interesting question. What's the role of Congress in oversight? That's a, that's a very challenging question. I'd slightly amend your point. I agree um, oversight is important for the sake of Congress um, informing itself before it passes new legislation, but also new appropriations. And that's a point that Madison stresses in Federalist 58. There's a great line in there. He talks about the history of the British Constitution, and he says the power of the purse um, is – the most effectual tool by which um, the representatives of the people can resist all the overgrown prerogatives of the other branches of the government. So it's oversight for the sake of not just legislation, but also appropriations going forward. I agree with that. I yeah. agree with that. And, of course, yeah. one of the difficulties that you have is this is always an appropriation going forward. There's always a case for oversight. Uh, the question in many cases is exactly what the motive in the organization is once the request is put forward. And, and I think under these circumstances, the effort here is not so much to figure out whether or not we want to appoint more money to the FBI or to change its practices of investigation. I think what they're trying to do is to get enough information so as to launch their impeachment campaign. Yeah. But impeachment is a much a more much but more. that is a constitutional power, right? I mean, Congress yes, is, it is, is right there, and so they, they have to do some oversight in order to make sure that they're using or not using that tool wisely. Um, 
so I, I listen. I, I'm not trying to stand up for Natalie. I think their their I think their demands are ridiculous. I think they beclowned themselves with their hearing on Thursday, where Barr refused to appear, and so I'm told there was a bucket of chicken or something to represent uh, Barr. That's that's beneath. That's just as beneath. is that what they did? Yeah, that's what I, I, I might be oh, wrong. They put it on the grounds that he's a chicken because he didn't. Yeah. That is so beneath the dignity of the House of Representatives. It's just every bit as beneath the, the dignity of that office as all the sort of clownish things that President Trump does in his speeches to lampoon the presidency itself. And I think that sometimes these people all deserve each other. Well, that's not a very happy note. But what I, <laughs> let, let me just ask the following question. You know more about Washington Protocol than I do. But I take it when you have a chief cabinet officer of the United States and they are called before the Congress, all the questioning is always done by the representatives of the House or of the Senate themselves, not of their staff. Um, so I'm thinking, for example, when you have a Supreme Court nominee, I'm not aware of the fact that any Democrat or Republican would think it's appropriate when the nominee before them to have them questioned by a staff attorney. Is that correct? I think it is. Well, wait, there were there were attorneys that did some of the questioning in the Kavanaugh hearing. Um, did they do it direct to him? Or did they feed the questions to somebody else? Oh, it's been so long. Now, if I remember correctly, no, you're right. It was the Republican senators had a lawyer question uh, Justice Kavanaugh's accuser. Yes, but, but not the him. Senate Demo- That's right, but the Senate Democrats chose to question Kavanaugh themselves. I, I think that – so this was an interesting point that, that, that Barr said or, or Barr's spokesman said that he wouldn't appear – you know, as a, a Senate-confirmed cabinet officer, he wouldn't appear to answer questions, you know, deposition style by a, uh, the Senate's counsel. I don't know if that's a historic line. I just don't know what the precedents are, if any. I think it was a re- reasonable conclusion by Barr. Ultimately, this oversight only works – if there is sort of goodwill on both sides and if both sides come to the table willing to sort of engage and also restrain themselves in certain ways. And here I think we're just seeing that breakdown in real time. Um, oh, next, okay. next, 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 you know, they'll ask uh, maybe, maybe, maybe the next uh, House Republicans, you know, the Republican House can ask the next Democratic administration to be hooked up to lie detectors throughout all of their sort of oversight hearings. And we'll just go on and on, and things will just fall further and further apart. Now, why is it that this is happening so much? Is something of a puzzle. I think it's traced to the decline of bipartisanship on virtually every kind of issue that we have. And as far as I can see, the Democrats have moved much further to the left than they've been. The Republicans have moved somewhat further to the right. I understand, and I have very strong convictions as to how this ought to play out on the questions of whether we believe in markets or regulation, and to the extent that we have Donald Trump in his deregulatory mode, I'm four square behind him. When he starts trying to play games with tariffs and the like, I'm four square against him. But the Democrats, to my mind, are hopeless on those issues. But that's not what's at stake here. These are issues of government and trust, and yeah. it turns out that the polarization now means that neither side can talk to the other. Right. Well, as, our, as, as our colleague uh, Mofi Arena points out, um, the yeah. problem may be less the the polarization of the public than it is of the people. Than it is of the part. Than it is of the parties. Right. The problem is polarized parties. <laughs> and I'd say the what you're seeing is a symptom of the fact that Congress isn't really in the business of legislation. They're now strictly in the business of, you know, at best oversight. 
Um, when we now live, I mean, listen, I run the program at George Mason's Law School, the, yes. the Center for the Study of the Administrative State, and of course, when all you have is a hammer, everything you see is a nail. But having said that, I think what we see is a reflection of the fact that all real governance happens through the executive branch, that Congress over a century enacted broader and broader delegations of power such that it's not really – it doesn't have any incentive to be in the legislation business anymore and has every incentive not to be in the legislation business anymore. And we now have this inversion of the constitutional system where the president and his agencies are the lawmakers and Congress sees itself as sort of ombudsman for the administrative state um, and the partisan breakdown in Congress means you'll have at all times – the, the critics of the administration and the defenders of the administration. Um, I think this is a serious, uh, serious problem. And now, I don't I, see an easy way out. There's never an easy way out of anything, I think. But look, I think the delegation problem is a symptom of another thing. If you had very limited federal powers, as existed, say, before 1937, it's easier for Congress to give more specific orders because it has a much smaller agenda on its plate. But now when everything is the subject matter, and these guys also have their huge political obligations, plus the genuine unwillingness to take the heat on controversial issues, delegation downward is going to take place. Now, if the delegation were only for a year or two and everybody knew who the president was, you'd see delegations by democratic governance to congresses to democratic presidents and so forth. But we do now we have long-term delegations. And so the power that is given by Congress can first go to your friends and then go to your enemies. And we've never been able to figure out how it is that we actually operate under a system where there is a incredibly sharp break between administrations. And huge delegations. The transition costs are just enormous under these systems. Um, the commonality between the Trump administration and the Obama administration on most issues is virtually zero. Uh, you see one after another of the earlier orders being pulled out. I am certainly very much opposed to virtually everything that Obama did, but I do think that the, in, the, the, the lack of continuity that comes when you have excessive delegations and then when you have extremely deferential judicial apportionments, too much power is lodged in the president in many, many cases, and too much vulnerability to huge switches. And then when Congress can't do anything, what they do is they have a temper tantrum, which is exactly what's taking place in this case. Well, you know, Richard, week after week when we record our podcast, and I always enjoy these these discussions, we find ourselves you know, focused on the moment of the the, the, the debate of the, the controversy yeah. of the moment. If things ever slow down this summer, I think uh, it would be great to have a com- dedicated conversation to sort of these deeper questions of constitutional governance and the mm-hmm. role of Congress in our government. But that's far deeper a subject than we really can tackle with our remaining time. So Today, I think we should call it a day, right? I should yeah. tell you, by the way, I am finishing up a book uh, which is called The Dubious Morality of the Administrative State. Oh, good. Well, Richard, you're always finishing a book. Um, I always claim to be starting one. Uh, (laughs) I hope I can pick up your pace. Um, But as always, uh, thank you so much uh, for this. I enjoyed this conversation, and I thank our listeners, and we'll return next time. Great. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.